Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. So could Vice President Kamala Harris follow Richard Nixon and challenge the filibuster? I'll bet that piqued your curiosity. I'm going to get into that in just a minute. How the filibuster is not in the Constitution. Its only purpose way back was to block discussion of legislation that involves slavery or civil rights, and what Richard Nixon did to change the filibuster when he was vice president, not when he was in, well, he was never in the Senate, but when he was in the House of Representatives. We're going to do a deep dive into dopamine. Dopamine Nation is the title of the book, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna Lemke is the uh, author. She's a physician and has written an absolutely brilliant book about how we get addicted and to what and why and all that sort of stuff, and it's really going to be fascinating hours. So stick around for that. But to begin, could Vice President Harris follow Richard Nixon and challenge the filibuster? As you know, Chuck Schumer brought to the floor of the United States Senate this Freedom to Vote Act. The original legislation that would have protected our right to vote, the For the People Act, uh, they couldn't get a single Republican to vote for it. Uh, even though it passed the, the House of Representatives, not one single Republican would vote for it. And Mitch McConnell and other Republicans actively filibustered it. Now, had they not filibustered it, it would have passed because there were 51 votes, 50 Democratic senators plus the vice president, Kamala Harris. But because a Republican said, I object, suddenly the bar went from 50 votes to 60 votes. And it failed. So Joe Manchin came out and he said uh, to the Democrats, he said, I know how to work with these Republicans. They're not so terrible. They're, they're not crazy. They're, they're not obstructionists. They just have some specific objections to th some things in your legislation. So let me work out a deal with them that is acceptable to them. So he got together with Lisa Murkowski the independent who caucuses with the Republicans. She's from Alaska. She was a Republican. Her father was, you know, a Republican. I think he was governor if he wasn't senator, one or the other. An old Alaskan political name. He got together with Lisa Murkowski and Amy Klobuchar, who is the principal author of this new bill called the Freedom to Vote Act, and came up with a piece of legislation that he and, and uh, well, apparently several other Republicans, I mean, he was uh, Manchin was kind of dangling it that, yeah, there'll be 10 Republican votes for this. Don't worry. There's some rational Republicans out there. You know, you got, I mean, he didn't name names, but uh, he, he implying, you know, you got Mitt Romney and you've got uh, Lisa Burkowski and maybe Susan Collins. And I don't know, is there a fourth? <laughs> but So anyhow, he wrote this bill on the premise that he could get Republican votes. And so Schumer, he said, okay, let's try this. And sure enough, 100% of the Republicans said, no, screw you. We don't believe in free and fair elections. And they used the filibuster to do it. Just to be clear, the filibuster, this, you know, this thing where an, any individual senator can simply send an email or have their staff member send an email to the House Majority Leader or the Senate Majority Leader, to, in this case, that would be uh, Chuck Schumer, and say, uh, I object. 
And all of a sudden, instead of a majority, 50 votes plus one, being needed to pass a piece of legislation, it becomes 60 votes. This is not in the Constitution. It's not a part of any law. And it is damaging America. The founding generation was horrified by this. The, the original um, situation that set up the filibuster came about in 1808. But the filibuster itself really got fine-tuned in the mid-1830s when John C. Calhoun became a, the senator from, as I recall, South Carolina and uh, started giving speeches in which he called slavery a positive good. The House of Representatives had passed an actual rule saying that you may not mention slavery on the floor of the House because this was as the abolition movement was really growing. Keep in mind in 1830, England, or in the, in the 1830s, England outlawed slavery, which produced this huge explosion of anti-slavery, you know, abolition activity in the United States in the 1830s. And so the, the House outlawed it, which is why John Quincy Adams, after he left the White House, he was president, went back to being in the House of Representatives, ran for, for Congress from Massachusetts and went back into the House just so every single day the House was in session, he could go to the floor of the House and say, I think slavery should be abolished. And they could say, you may not say that. And he'd sit back down. But in the Senate, what John C. Calhoun did is he used the, he, he, he fine-tuned the filibuster. And the filibuster was used 100% from 1836 until the end of the Civil War to block any discussion of slavery or abolition of slavery on the floor of the Senate. From 1865, or really from the failure of Reconstruction, 1876, until 1964, as historian Adam Gentleson notes, quote, for the, the seven, 87 years between the end when Reconstruction ended until 1964, the only category of legislation against which the filibuster was deployed to actively stop bills in their tracks was civil rights legislation. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. The filibuster is just a rule that the Senate has that they can change anytime they want. And it's an unconstitutional rule because what it does is it gives more power to the votes of certain senators than other senators. Article 5 of the Constitution says, and I quote, no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Now suffrage is, you know, your right to vote, your right to have your vote counted. This is the, uh, you know, what used to be referred to as the uh, one man, one vote, and you know, a, a couple of decades ago we changed it to one person, one vote. But, I mean, you know, you'll, you'll read the founders talking about one man, one vote. And this is, this, was a, this is the basic concept that no citizen's vote, no matter how rich they are, no matter how many friends they have, no matter how many Facebook likes they have, no citizen's vote counts more than any other citizen's vote. Well, the Constitution says that the same is true of the votes of the states. Each state has two senators. But with a filibuster... We have 41 states that represent 27% of America, excuse me, 24% of America, of American citizens, who have the ability to block senators who represent 76% of Americans from having any say. And that's a clear and egregious loss of a state's equal suffrage guaranteed in the Constitution. So the filibuster is unconstitutional. So, there's a history here, and it's a fascinating one. Back in 1957, Richard Nixon and Dwight Eisenhower had just won re-election in the election of 1956, November 56. They were sworn in on January 20th, 1957. And Nixon, Vice President Nixon, was presiding over the, the opening of the 85th session of, of Congress, the 85th Congress. And at that time, the rule, the filibuster rule, said, if you want to make any changes to the filibuster, you have to do so with a majority, with a supermajority of votes. Not a simple majority, but you have to have two-thirds of the, of the Senate. 66 votes. And Nixon, as vice president and as president of the Senate, issued what's called an advisory opinion saying, this is against the Constitution. There are only three exceptions in the Constitution that say that you can have a that you can require a supermajority. 
Impeachment takes two thirds in the Senate to impeach somebody. Signing treaties, it takes uh, you know two thirds uh, to 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 sign a treaty with another country, and ratifying constitutional amendments. That's it. Those are the only things, the only places in the Constitution where it says the Senate must hit a two-thirds uh, bar. Everything else is simple majority. So Nixon said the filibuster being a two-thirds bar is unconstitutional. And it stuck. He was, he was quoted again in 1967 by Vice President Hubert Humphrey and again in 1975 by Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. And in 2013, when Harry Reid was facing obstruction in just getting cabinet secretaries and, and low-level judges through a, a Republican filibuster. He dusted off Richard Nixon's statement and said, okay, we can change the filibuster with a simple majority. We control 50 votes in the Senate. We're going to do it. And he did. And then in 2017, Mitch McConnell did the exact same thing, saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to drill a hole in the filibuster for Supreme Court justices so we can get Neil Gorsuch and, and Brett Kavanaugh on the court with fewer than 60 votes, something that had never happened before. And he did. So here's the delicious irony. The Supreme Court, excuse me, the, the, the filibuster has been used consistently over almost 200 years now to block civil rights legislation. That's been its principal cause. And wouldn't it be extraordinary if America's first black vice president and America's first female vice president, for that matter, were the one who punctured, was the one who punctured the uh, filibuster. If Vice President Kamala Harris was to do what Richard Nixon did as president of the Senate, which she is, as he was in 57, and say, I do not believe that the filibuster is constitutional, and therefore it should be removed. Now, that would then provoke, it wouldn't end the filibuster, it would provoke a debate in the Senate about the future of the filibuster. But the debate would be completely different. It would be on different terms. It wouldn't be, do we do away with the filibuster or not? It would be, is the filibuster constitutional or not? And that could easily lead to all kinds of things happening, including holes being drilled in the filibuster. I mean, this, this is just, I think, necessary. So now, Democrats, some Democrats say, oh no, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you do that, then when the Republicans come back in, they're gonna, for example, pass a law ending the Affordable Care Act. They tried to do that before and we stopped them with a filibuster. Well, I've got an answer to that. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And of course, we'll pick up your phone calls on this. I've got a few other examples, too. Stick around. Tom Hartman here with you. So what will happen if... There's no more filibuster, right? This is the thing that some Democrats who are concerned about the filibuster are saying. Well, let me give you an example, first of all, of how destructive the filibuster is. Back in 2012, in, at Sandy Hook, there was this slaughter of 21st graders and six adults at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. And in response to that, Senators Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey, Democrat of West Virginia, Republican of Pennsylvania, put together a fairly modest bill that simply increased the use of background checks to, to purchase weapons. Fifty-five senators co-sponsored that legislation, uh, an obvious and clear majority, as did 80 to 90 percent of the American public, depending on which opinion poll you were looking at. But Republicans, beholden to the gun industry, filibustered the bill and killed it by requiring 60 votes. There is so much good legislation. There's a link in my article actually to a piece from the Brennan Center for Justice that documents how right up until around the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, the filibuster was actually very rarely used and the Senate would typically pass over a thousand pieces of legislation a year. Now the filibuster is constantly used and the Senate is passing fewer than 200 pieces of legislation here, and that includes things like naming post offices. 
So the filibuster, first of all, is completely out of control and has been used almost exclusively by one party. But what about, oh, hey, the Republicans want to undo Obamacare. And the Democrats' last hope is the filibuster in the Senate to stop them. I say, I believe in democracy. If the Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House, and they want to do away with Obamacare, let them do it. Let them deal with the consequences of that. Let it blow up in their damn faces. Just, I mean, look at what's happening in Texas right now, outlawing abortion. It's provoking a national debate. It's hurting the Republicans. Sometimes when they get what they want, it hurts them. Instead, right now, they're hiding behind the filibuster. This is wrong, this filibuster. It needs to go. Tom Hartman here with you and Scott Munster, Indiana. It says here you disagree with me, so you go first. What's up? Well, the reality is that pendulum is going to swing when it comes to that filibuster. And you hit the nail on the head on on your previous segment. They were going to get rid of the ACA. I personally use the ACA. I can't have that happen, and and nor can millions and millions of Americans. You know, McConnell, the day that Harry Reid got rid of the on the federal judges below the, the Supreme Court of the filibuster, McConnell flat out said, you will live to regret this. And what has happened over the past four years? We have lived to regret that. Yes, everything you said is a thousand percent right. It's born out of racism. It's evil. It's wrong. But it's what we live in today. And the ramifications of when that pendulum swings is too great. Scott, respectfully, you're thinking too small. You're thinking of one narrow circumstance, which is, oh, gee, the Republicans are going to do away with the ACA. But all hell will be, you know, coming down on the Republicans, at least for the things of of the Affordable Care Act that people like. Yeah, that's just one example, though. And and therein lies the the, the risk of that pendulum. And I'm giving you 300 opposite examples of the pieces of legislation that are stalled right now in the Senate. That all passed the House of Representatives. Labor protections. I beg your pardon? When that pendulum swings, what are they going to do? Well, first of They're all, I'm not so worried about the pendulum swinging, as I said. If, it, if, if the Republicans regain control, and there's a chance they will, um, then you know, let, them, let them do their worst. What they will be doing is revealing themselves to America, just like Texas did. You know, for 40 years, 50 years now, we've been saying, oh, yeah, the Republicans talk about you know, ending uh, a woman's right to have an abortion. But they can't do it because of the Supreme Court, or they can't do it because of the filibuster. And so the Republicans have been able to campaign on it without ever actually doing it, because they knew if they did it, you know, the wrath of God, or at least the wrath of women, would come down on them. And it's going to hurt, and it's already hurting them terribly in Texas. Thank you, Scott, for the call and the, and the, and the, and the discussion, a, a thoughtful discussion. I appreciate that when people disagree with me and can remain thoughtful. Teresa in Augusta, Georgia. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind? Hey, I got a simple solution to the whole filibuster problem. Okay. Everybody's so afraid of what the other side going to do. Hasn't occurred to anyone that passing popular legislation that's supported by the majority of the voters will kind of curve that uh, what if they get power thing. Because once you put something in action and it turns out to be good, Try yanking and see what's going to happen. It's just, it's just the Democrats got to stop being scared. The Republicans aren't. They don't care. They just want power. If the Democrats are afraid of what may happen, they're never going to try to do what they can to make a change that will, you know, probably squash some of that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's simple. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, the, and, the, and here's the problem. The, the, the Democrats are thinking way too small. And they have been since way the 1980s, frankly. Uh, and they need way. to stop thinking small. When you think of who are the presidents who are considered the great transformational figures in American history, you look at Abraham Lincoln, you look at, at, at uh, uh, FDR, you look at uh, Lyndon Johnson with the Great Society, you look at Ronald Reagan. I mean, Barack Obama said Ronald Reagan was the most transformational president of my lifetime. It was true. 
And, you know, so presidents who are able to accomplish big things help their party tremendously. If Reagan hadn't done what he had done, I don't think we would have had, you know, uh, half the Republican presidents that we've had since then. And, and uh, you know, if, if Biden could really go big, which he could do without a filibuster, by the way, with, with like I said, hundreds of pieces of legislation sitting in the Senate right now. And, and Why do we keep will, ourselves? They, because we're afraid of what might. I know, I know. It's 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 a terrible thing, Teresa. You you really put your finger on it. Thank you so much, Carol in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? It's Carla, I guess. My oh, name. Carla. Carla. I'm sorry. Yes, Tom. I completely agree with you. I think that we need to just get rid of it altogether. But if we have to start by just carving out, so we could get legislation through. I was actually thinking that if we got the for the people act, and I mean. That in and of itself, we will have the majority again. I'm trying yep. to figure out how, you know, then there will be equity or fairness within, you know, the voting institutions and platforms. And then the Republicans can't get away with all this cheating, the gerrymandering, redistricting. Yep. And yeah. that piece of legislation in and of itself would do wonders. And I was even thinking we wouldn't even have to worry about the House or you know, things swaying during the midterms or 2024 to the Republican side so much. I mean, you know, but yeah. I, I wasn't even thinking of the health care, the ACA Act. It's, I know, you know, a lot of Democrats are apprehensive when, you know, thinking that the tides are going to turn. But if we, you know, like I said, if we get the um, Voting Rights Act to go through, we don't have to worry so much. I'm with about. you, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act too, that that partially restores the the not all the pre-clearance provisions, but basically makes it harder for states to to do what Texas is doing. Well, not just Texas, you know, 33 laws in 19 states now have been passed to make it harder for people to vote, specifically targeting Social Security age people who are you know Social Security voters, voting Democratic, young people who are, you know, environment voters voting Democratic and and a whole spectrum of minority voters, but particularly African-American voters. And that, you know, those are the targets of all this legislation that's popping up in state after state after state. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would would fix that, as would have the For the People Act. And even even to some extent, you know, Joe Manchin's terribly watered down Freedom to Vote Act. So, yeah, there's a lot to do here. Carla, thank you. Spot on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's time for a deep dive into dopamine. It's our conversations with great minds today or this week. Uh, Dr. Anna Lemke is with us, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, author of the new book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance 
in the age of indulgence. Dr. Lemke, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us. Let's start by just defining, you know, your book title is Dopamine Nation. What is dopamine? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which means that it's a chemical in the brain that helps neurons communicate with each other and pass their electrical signals through neural circuits. And dopamine is very important to the experience of reward, motivation, and pleasure. And isn't it involved in motion, as I recall, uh, Parkinson's? Is it dopamine insufficiency? What's, how does that work? That's right. So dopamine, isn't, it's, it has more than one role in the brain. It's not just uh, motivation and reward. It's also um, intricately associated with our ability to move and has been since the most primitive species, um, including primitive nematodes. And um, the depletion of dopamine in the substantia nigra, which is a specific nucleus in the brain, is associated with the development of Parkinson's disease. And it's no surprise that motion and reward are associated with each other because, of course, in order to get uh, our rewards, we typically have to move our bodies and move toward them. Of course, today that's not true anymore, but for most of human existence, that has been the case. Yeah, and, and, and clearly, I mean, if this is a, a neurochemical that goes back to nematodes, it is deep, deep within our biology, way beyond our ability to presumably our ability to modulate it or control it or, or resist it through conscious effort? Well, we can. We certainly have top-down gray matter that can exert an enormous influence on our ability to modulate our pursuit of pleasure and reward. But it is true that this is an evolutionarily conserved and robust part of the brain that is essentially unchanged for millions of years of evolution and is the same across most species. It's a highly conserved, highly important part of our neural machinery and its fundamental job is to get us to approach pleasure and avoid pain. In the, the first chapter of your book is titled Our Masturbation Machines and, and, and you talk about drugs, alcohol, uh, uh, why these things are, are so addictive. You talk about today six and a half trillion cigarettes are sold around the world, how Frederick Surtener discovered morphine and then you know in 1853 we got the hypodermic syringe and, and then heroin was supposed to solve that problem. How do these drugs, the actual physical drugs, drugs, interact with dopamine in our body and what relationship does that have to their ability to be addictive? The fundamental difference between things that are addictive and those that are not is that things that are addictive release a whole lot of dopamine all at once uh, in our brain's reward pathway. And um, technology has allowed us to not just distill these substances from nature, but also make them uber-potent increasingly over time. And the result is that um, we're all more vulnerable to addiction because what happens in the brain um, when there's a huge spike and increase in dopamine levels is that our brain immediately tries to accommodate for that increase by down-regulating our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission. And this down-regulation brings dopamine not just to tonic baseline levels, but actually sends it plummeting below baseline levels before restoring normal homeostasis or uh, tonic baseline levels of dopamine. So that's really important because what it means is that the neural mechanisms that bring us back into balance do so uh, first by bringing us below baseline levels. That means for every pleasure, uh, the price is pain. Uh, what goes up really must come down before uh, going to a normal level again. And so that's the hangover or the after effect or the come down that we experience. But what happens with repeated exposure to the same or similar drug is that that initial dopamine spike gets uh, less and lasts for a shorter amount of time. But that after effect where we plunge below baseline dopamine levels gets stronger and longer. Um, so that means that the cumulative effect over time of continuing to bombard our reward pathways with very high levels of dopamine is that we essentially enter um, a dopamine deficit state where we're chronically uh, below baseline levels of dopamine. And this is essentially akin to clinical depression. Um, people will experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal 
from any addictive substance or behavior, which includes anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts um, of using our drug. And the central hypothesis that I put forward in Dopamine Nation is that the reason that we're seeing increasing rates of depression, anxiety, suicide all over the world, but especially in rich nations, is because we're um, bombarding our reward pathways with dopamine, with all these feel-good drugs and behaviors just a finger click away. And the result is that individually and collectively, we've had to downregulate our own dopamine production in order to survive in a dopamine overloaded world. Wow. And I, I think an example of that would be uh, perhaps tobacco addiction. I remember when I was a teenager, I started smoking cigarettes. And I, I, I still remember the, the first time I smoked a cigarette, um, after feeling a little sick to my stomach, it was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. I'm a little high here. And that persisted <laughs> right. for about a week that I got high when I smoked. And then after that, it was, uh, if I didn't have another cigarette, instead of, instead of smoking after that, I mean, occasionally I, I, you get the sense that it's calming me down. But after that, it was like, I feel terrible if I don't have a cigarette. And, when I quit, when I was uh, 21, when uh, uh, Louise became pregnant with our first child, that was when we, we both decided, okay, we're going to quit smoking right now. And that was it. And that was, you know, 50 years ago. And um, it, that was, that was a really difficult time for me. I'd only been f smoking for a couple of years, but I, it took me months to get my sleep patterns back. And, and so it, that's, that's what you're talking about here, isn't it? Or is nicotine yeah, uniquely yeah. addicting yeah. for some other reason? No, no, that's exactly right, and thank you for sharing that personal example. I think that, that always helps to kind of illustrate this phenomenon. What happened to you is that, as it happens to most people who use nicotine and other addictive substances and behaviors, is that um, in order to accommodate the huge increase in dopamine levels caused by consumption of that drug, uh, the brain downregulates its own dopamine production and transmission, puts us into a dopamine deficit state, and that means that now... We need our drug not to feel good, but just to stop feeling bad, just to feel normal. And that even after we stop, uh, you know, those dopamine deficit states persist, and they can persist for weeks to months, and in some cases, even years. Our brains with enough plasticity can readapt and return dopamine levels back to normal baselines, but it typically takes a very long time to do that, and that's what you experience. So the insomnia, the irritability, the not feeling good, you are basically experiencing what we call the protracted withdrawal syndrome. I would also just add to highlight the impact of technology and the ways in which we're living, living in an unprecedented, addictogenic, drugified world is that in the 1880s, the cigarette rolling machine was invented. And at that point, people who were producing cigarettes went from being able to produce four cigarettes per minute to 20,000 cigarettes per minute. Whoa. So you can just imagine how that transformed access and quantity. And of course, one of the two of the major factors of whether or not we will get addicted to a drug is how easy our access is to that drug and how much of that drug uh, we can get and we can use. And, and so, you know, um, things like the cigarette rolling machine and also our incredible uh, supply chain, those have disseminated these highly reinforcing drugs all over the world, making us all much more vulnerable to this problem. And I remember, geez, this was, I think, in the 90s, the, this got revealed to the world that the tobacco companies in the United States were adding ammonia to their cigarettes. And people were like, ammonia? You know, why would you do that? It turns out it alters the chemistry of the nicotine. I, I believe it, it makes it more alkaline. And so it sticks to the blood. This has got to be a very primitive description, but it, you know, it, sticks, it sticks to our blood faster and it gets into our brain faster. And it's the same thing as like, you know, freebasing cocaine. Suddenly it, it whacks you much faster and that increases the addictive potential because it increases the speed with which you get the nicotine high. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a great illustration of how chemistry and advances in chemistry um, have really altered almost everything we consume from cigarettes to the basic food that we eat. You know, food is now um, much more full of sugar, fat, and oil uh, than it was 150, 200 years ago. 
Uh, we now have invented flavors like French toast ice cream that didn't even <laughs> exist before. Um, you know, combining two pleasurable things and putting them together in one is um, a classic way to make a drug more potent. And of course, um, as we increase our consumption over time of any drug, we need more of it and we, ne- we need more potent forms to try to oh, get the same effect. It's called tolerance. And, and essentially what's happening is we're, we're trying to combat this dopamine deficit state with repeated use. Our baseline levels of dopamine go lower and lower, such that we need more and more just to bring it up to normal and then bring it up above normal to, to feel any kind of uh, you know, reward. Are you saying that sugar, salt, and fats trigger dopamine release? Absolutely, absolutely. And food addiction is real. So, you know, conceptualizing sugar as an addiction for certain vulnerable people, well, we're all vulnerable. There's there's almost nobody who doesn't like a sweet or salty or fatty food. But this gets into the issue of drug of choice and how some of us are going to be more vulnerable to some drugs than others. And some people, their food, their drug of choice really is food. And the food manufacturers have figured this out and they fine-tune the foods to make them more addictive? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, most of the potatoes consumed in the world today are uh, fried potatoes. Which is, oh, complete with fat and salt, <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I've heard that uh, some places even add a little bit of sugar to their, to their uh, French fries. Yep. There you go. Anna Lemke is with us. Her new book is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's absolutely brilliant. So you now following along those lines, what are, in your experience, the most, I mean, you mentioned food can be an addictive substance and the, and the food manufacturers, uh, the processed food manufacturers anyway, are going out of their way to make food increasingly, progressively more and more addictive. The tobacco manufacturers in the United States since, since the mid 20th century have been adding ammonia to cigarettes to make them more like crack, you know, nicotine rather than regular nicotine. What are the principal addictions that Americans in particular suffer from, including those that we may not think of as addictions? Well, the most common addictions uh, are alcohol, cannabis, and tobacco. But more and more, we're seeing a growing problem of um, what we call behavioral or process addictions. These are addictions not to a substance that we ingest, but actually to a behavior, including behaviors that didn't exist before, like video games and social media. Certainly, the the smartphone is is equivalent to the hypodermic syringe. It delivers digital dopamine 24-7, increasing access and quantity. Things like TikTok never run out. And what we're seeing more and more is that even among people who, let's say, had a, a gambling problem or a pornography use habit, it's really the advent of the Internet and the smartphone and the increased availability to highly potent sources of pornography, of gaming of all sorts. Human connection has been drugified through social media and other platforms. And all of that releases uh, more dopamine than our primitive brains were meant to handle. And so we're seeing more and more people get addicted to those behaviors. I would also add, I think we're seeing more and more people develop kind of minor addiction. So they might not meet full criteria for an addictive disorder, but they're um, sort of on the borderline. And I would say that most of us at this day, in this day and age, can relate to having some kind of compulsive, overconsumptive behavior that we wish we didn't. You mentioned uh, things like sex, for example. Yeah. I've read stories suggesting that one of the problems in the porn industry is that people need more, progressively more extreme pornography in order to get the same jolt. Is that, is, this is the same process? And does that translate into things like social media? People need more and more extreme interactions. And so the, the most extreme interaction is yelling, screaming, and shouting obscenities at somebody or, or invading the Capitol? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. This phenomenon of tolerance, which is driven by the, this dopamine deficit state, which is this compensatory response to elevated dopamine levels, happens across all addictions. I will often have patients who come in who have a compulsive masturbation problem to certain, let's call them deviant forms of pornography, and they will wonder, you know, if there's something like morally corrupt with them. But when I get a careful history, I usually find out that they didn't start out with that kind of um, interest, that it progressed over time as they built up tolerance to more conventional forms of pornography, as they increased the amount that they were masturbating, uh, the, the, you know, just the duration of that problem. 
you know, eventually they went into a dopamine deficit state and then they just needed more deviant forms as more potent forms to get the same effect. Remarkable. We're talking with Dr. Anna Lemke, the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, our conversations with great minds here today. And we were just talking about how with pornography, for example, people need increasingly strong jolts of dopamine and stimuli to stimulus to produce that dopamine jolt. And so people tend to wander into more and more extreme pornography. This is something that's been you know, widely talked about in the media. But you know, down in South America, I've chewed coca leaf. I have, you know, tasted opium tea in the Middle East. Those things, you know, chewing a coca leaf is like a mild cup of coffee. But when you distill it into cocaine, suddenly it's like, wham, this dopamine slam that can get you addicted. And right. it, it seems like that's the same thing that's happening with porn. I'm wondering if that's what's happening with social media. If the reason that these people on January 6th showed up at the U.S. Capitol willing to kill people or be killed had to do with their absolute human need, the normal, you know, the kind of coca leaf of, of social interaction, the need to interact with other human beings, being yeah. turned into that hyperdermic drug, that crack version through Facebook and other social media, and then that algorithm driving people into more and more and more extreme forms of social connection, like, you know, conspiracy theories and hysteria and anger and rage, and that even gets them on a bus to D.C. Am I way off here? No, I think you're absolutely right on. That's exactly right. What social media has done is it's taken a fundamentally adaptive aspect of humans, which is our desire to connect with each other, and essentially turned it into a drug. If you think about human connection from an evolutionary perspective, it makes total sense that we would want to be in tribes. Being in a tribe helps us find and steward scarce resources. It protects us from predators. It enhances our, our chances of finding a mate and procreating our species. And the way that our brain gets us to make those human connections is essentially to release dopamine in our reward pathway when we do make those connections. And naturally, on social media, we're making human connections. But now we've, now we've distilled it into its purest, most drugified form. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. It's like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg as the pusher. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Dr. Lemke, you were beginning to explain to us how social media can become addictive and how that could have led to, that, that actual addiction could have led to people showing up on January 6th or, you know, a whole spectrum of other weird behaviors that seem to come out of social media. You want to elaborate? Sure. I mean, again, you know, connecting with other humans is fundamental and basic and, and, and essentially adaptive and healthy. But what's happened online with social media is it's essentially drugified that phenomenon. And it's done that in a number of different ways. First of all, it's increased both the um, quantity and access to humans all over the world, which, again, could be a good thing, but um, can also potentially be a bad thing. It's made those um, potential interactions more potent by combining multiple drugs together. So, for example, combining human connection with gambling or human connection with sex or human connection with beautiful faces. Um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, we get a release of dopamine when people like us, 
when people regard us highly, and also when we are experiencing the same emotion at the same time as other people. So, for example, if you've ever wondered why there are YouTube videos uh, that people watch of other people watching other people doing things, it's because we get dopamine when we experience the same emotion at the same time. And so when we're thinking about things like the January 6th, um, rioting, you know, probably what happened is this tribe connected online had a powerful surge of dopamine at their shared outrage and sense of injustice, um, and that bonded them together online. And when they met in person, that was even more potent, and that led to a kind of a, a frenzy where people were no longer able to make, um, you know, good and informed judgments, um, you know, about how to best to express their opinions. And of course, then that that leads to things like like violence. So. Um, you know, social media is this this wonderful opportunity uh, for social change and for positive human connection. But again, it's the likes, it's the uh, infinite aspect, it's the you know, it's the way that it's become more potent and less nuanced uh, that really makes it, in some situations, dangerous. I think most people are familiar with how honeybees can swarm. Yeah. I'm assuming that that's probably dopamine mediated. Is that a similar phenomena to how? mobs seem to have their own mentality. I heard a veteran on TV yesterday, he was saying that he had been in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he said, you know, it's not the individuals you worry about. It's when you get 100 people in the street or more, the mob mentality takes over and you're dealing with something that's not quite even human, I think was the phrase he used. I would say probably from your description, it's altogether way too human, but is that how a mob is different from simply a group of people? Yeah, and I think the way to understand that is that we are exquisitely attuned to what people around us are doing. If you ever watch a flock of birds, if one bird is startled and raises its wing into the sky, immediately everybody, all the other birds will join it, even if they don't know why they're doing that. And, you know, that's a basic survival mechanism, and it's a very primitive tribal survival mechanism. And it happens in humans, too. When humans get together, um, the the organism is much larger than any one individual, and it's responding to, to primitive cues and instincts that really override and defy um, an individual person's judgment. And we're all vulnerable to it. If you think you're not vulnerable, then you've never really been you know, caught up in a crowd. It's incredibly potent, and it, it probably does release huge amounts of dopamine. Does that does that explain war and and yeah does that and and, and does it tell us anything we could do to prevent war or is that a, a stretch too far? I mean, I, do, I think what it what it does speak to is that you know we have our highly conserved primitive brain, including our reward pathway, which essentially works. Um, on these reflexive um, neurotransmitters like dopamine. But in addition to that, we have our prefrontal cortex, which is our great big gray matter that's right behind our foreheads that communicates with our more primitive um, brainstem functions and allows us to really modulate uh, those experiences and override uh, reflexive impulses. And so what happens in a crowd or in a, in a situation of extreme danger, um, you know, sometimes it's good to have that prefrontal cortex modulating those instincts, and sometimes it's bad. Sometimes those instincts have to take the front seat or people won't survive. If, if that, you're at war and you're wondering whether or not, you know, gee, should I shoot this person or not shoot this person who's got a gun pointed at me, you're probably going to die. So you wouldn't want to be thinking about that too long. But on the other hand, when we're talking about um, political issues or how to solve the complex problems that face nations today, you know, you don't want to be operating out of your limbic brain. You don't want to let dopamine drive that. It's really important that we engage our prefrontal cortex and have nuanced, thoughtful, slow discussions um, about you know how best to tackle these really complicated problems. Let's talk about how how this all starts when we're <coughs> excuse me when we're kids. Um, many years ago, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Joseph Chilton Pierce, uh, wrote a book called The Crack in the Cosmic Egg. I, I wrote the foreword for it. Actually, it's still in print. He's passed away now. Um, but in that book, he touches on and in, in another book, Magical Child, that he wrote, uh, he really does a deep dive on what he calls the, the, the stages, the, he calls them the great demyelinations, that, that when we're born, our brain has this profusion of neurons, and that over time, it's sort of like Michelangelo 
chipping away pieces of, of uh, granite or, or whatever it is, limestone, uh, and, and, and out of that chipping away is revealed, you know, David, right? And that the yeah, brain sculpts yeah. itself from the time that we're born. Mm -hmm. There's one great myelination at birth. There's another major one around five or six years old. That's when the magical right. uh, episode, you know, changes, the, the life changes. Mm -hmm. Another one in, when we hit adolescence, another big one when we hit around 20, 21 years old, and then it kind of stops. But at that point, we've got mm -hmm. a lot fewer neurons and our brain has been sculpted how does our interaction right. a if if that if my recollection of that narrative it's been 20 years since joe pierce and i talked about this and and you know and i wrote the forward for his book but um if if that's correct what does that tell us about the impact of these addictive substances be they heroin nicotine or social media on brains mm. that are in the process of being pruned yeah, no, thank you. That's a beautiful metaphor for what happens. You're absolutely right. You know, when we start out early in life, we have more neurons than we're ever going to have uh, later on. And it's not because we're smarter, but it's because our brains are uh, want to be highly adaptable and be able to adapt to whatever environment um, we find ourselves in. And, of course, the human environment is changing all the, all the time with each generation. So we go through what, what's called a pruning process, and that is a literal literal cutting back of the neurons that we don't use as often because we don't appear to need them for our given environment, and then a process of myelinating the neurons um, that we, we do use. And that myelination is, is adding a protective sheath that makes those neurons more efficient, kind of like um, insulation on a wire in an electrical circuit. And, and the result is that, um, you know, especially through adolescence, there's a huge cutting away of neurons that we don't use up until about, and that process continues till about age 24 or 25. And the implication of that is if we give our kids an iPad um, and uh, almost nothing else from an early age, uh, they will, uh, you know, prune and adapt their neurons to that iPad and they will lose other skills that they are not getting exposed to if they're not you know, learning to problem solve in real life without a computer, if they're not getting outside and moving their bodies. Likewise, with more traditional drugs and alcohol, you know, if, if kids learn that as a coping strategy, then it's going to be harder later on, once our pruning process is complete, to be able to develop new ways of coping in the world, new forms of distress tolerance, which is why it's so important to protect kids, to focus on prevention, to making sure that, that kids get healthy and adaptive coping strategies um, early on in life. So, Dr. Lemke, I have a couple of grandchildren. One is three years old and one is one year old. And the three-year-old, for a year during COVID, my wife and I were not hanging out with our daughter and her kids and her partner. So we were communicating via screens. And mm -hmm. for the yeah. three-year-old at first, because uh, he was two years old at the time, or a little less mm -hmm. than two years old, at, at first the screen was like, what's this? You know, and uh, he, uh -huh. it, it took him a while to figure out that there was somebody on the other side and that there, he yeah. could actually connect with us and all. I mean, it, you could see him going through that process of learning how to do this. Yeah. The one-year-old, this, this is where it got really fascinating, and, and, and I'm not sure what to make of it. The one-year-old has now, I mean, she's literally now one-year-old. Our daughter will hold up the FaceTime screen, you know, the camera, and, and she immediately recognizes us, knows that we're yeah, grandma and grandpa, right. knows that we're yeah. real people. I mean, she's seen us yeah. in, in the real world as well as in this yeah. virtual world, and yeah. as had her older brother. And, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, how is that rewiring her brain, and, and her brother's brain for that matter, and what does that yeah. mean? I mean, it's like, it's like we've got a generation growing up that understands reality in a way that I never did. Yeah, I know. It's just so fascinating. I, I love that story. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot to be optimistic about regarding this technology. I mean, the, the way that we were able to stay connected to loved ones during quarantine because of the technology is one of its many positive uses. And, yeah, the incredible adaptability of young people, you know, whether it's Gen Zers or younger, they're almost cybernetically enhanced. The, the technology is just part of their DNA. And it's going to be really interesting to watch as they mature 
you know, how how they navigate that. Because, again, lots of good things about it, but then these real sort of dangers involving compulsive overconsumption, um, you know, exclusively living in this, this matrix, um, not appropriately investing in, in real-life relationships, the problems of addiction and access to all these drugs. So it's really the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I think it's a fascinating time. And I would be, you know, the last one to say that, um, you know, we should get rid of technology or social media is all bad. And even if I did say that, you know, the genie's out of the pottle. There's no, there's no going back. And I just, I'm excited for Gen, Gen Zers and younger to sort of show us how they incorporate this incredible technology um, into their lives. Because if, one, if there's one thing humans have shown, they're highly adaptable and whatever comes along, even if it's um, you know, got some serious problems associated with it, they eventually figure it out. And I think that's great. Yeah. Um, for uh, in part because of what I learned from Joe Pierce, uh, we didn't have television. L my wife and I, when our kids were growing up, this was through the, the 70s, yeah. 80s, and 90s, we literally had no television in the house. They are all total right. readers. I mean, they know how to use television. But, right. you know, is, is that, should people be thinking about fasting social media from their kids? Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, you intuitively, or maybe through your reading and your, your social network, realize that television is uh, just a milder but equally pernicious form of this kind of screen fixation that we have. And to, to raise kids in a, an environment that's screen-free is to give them a huge gift and to really foster their neuroplasticity around other types of recreation, problem-solving engagement. They'll eventually get to the technology, and they'll absorb it faster than we ever will. So you don't need to introduce it early. In fact, better to keep them from it for as long as possible. That's great. I'd, I'd like to touch on that point one more time because I think it's so important. You know, for parents who are debating whether to give their kids screens, I mean, you know, for, for my generation, it was do you give your kids TV as a babysitter? Now it's do you give your kids uh, an iPad with a connection to Facebook or something like that as a babysitter? Right. What, are the, what are the cautions? in here. You know, I, I do recommend that kids below the age of about 12 or 13 not have their own personal device and that their time on screens be not just limited, but also highly monitored. And the reason for that is because, uh, you know, the Internet is essentially a portal to a lot of um, really awful stuff that kids should not be exposed to. And yet, given free reign, we'll inevitably enter all kinds of things into Google and end up someplace where we really don't want them to be. Also, I think it's essential in those early formative years, that first decade and a half in life, that we foster the tech-free coping strategies um, that are going to be so essential to serve our um, children as they grow and also offer some kind of balance or ballast for the technology-soaked lives that they will inevitably lead later. So this means making sure that they're involved in sports or some physical activity, that they get together with friends in real life and learn how to negotiate and play in real life, uh, that they, you know, engage with reading, that they learn problem-solving that's not just involving, you know, Googling someone. And then come 12 or 13, it's not like that's a great time for them to have um, unfettered access. But w what I've found, because we also raised our children without screens or devices, even our own, even without Wi-Fi to our house. But at some point, our daughter, the eldest, came home and said she just can't even function as a high school student without Wi-Fi to the house and her own devices. And that turned out to be true. So we had to get all that. And then she got her own phone. And then the next kid got his phone. And truth be told, you know, I, there's no way to monitor it. Once they get to be teenagers, they're going to do what they're going to do. And even with all the parental checks and wonderful things in place, they will find ways to circumvent what we put in place. So the key, in my opinion, is to make sure in those first 10 to 13 years, those formative years when we still have control over their lives, that we make sure that their screen access is highly limited, that we talk about the drugified, addictive nature of things online, that we teach them proper digital etiquette, and we teach them about um, values and morals related to their online use, how to be a good citizen online, and that we foster other activities that are not based on interacting online, because that's the only window we have. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I learned years ago was that when I get caught in rumination, in uh, painful introspection, you know, why did I do that? Um, yeah. The best way to break out of it for me is to stop and look at my environment. Notice what I'm seeing, listen to what I'm hearing, feel what I'm feeling, and just be completely present. 
and yeah. it just breaks that pattern. You talk about that in your book mm -hmm. as a way of dealing mm -hmm. with all these addictions, whether it's a screen addiction or a drug addiction. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, I mean, addiction really is about trying to escape ourselves, escape the world, numb ourselves, not be present. And the antidote to addiction is to do the opposite, to turn and face the things that we're running away from, to be fully present in the lives that we are given, to engage with those around us. That's really the antidote, to reach out, to be present, to invest in the world around us instead of continually trying to run away from it. Is this the sort of thing that we can teach our kids? Uh, you know, is this just a variation on Vipassana, on mindfulness? You know, it's related to mindfulness, but it's more than that. What I'm arguing for in Dopamine Nation is really a new kind of asceticism, where we intentionally avoid the hyper-convenient, pleasure-inducing world that we live in, and we intentionally seek out difficult, challenging, and even painful behaviors and experiences because we are living in a dopamine overloaded world. So, you know, Buddha's middle way has really been adulterated by this culture of convenience. We have to now intentionally thinking about eschewing or rejecting convenience and pleasure and hedonism and seek out things that are hard. Yeah, which would include what, uh, walking away from drugs, uh, walking away from screens? Yeah, I mean, it includes, for example, whatever your drug of choice is. And as I talk about in the book, mine is romance novels. And I really did get over a period of about two years addicted to romance novels. You know, I had to basically stop reading romance for a period of time. Yeah. So it's, it's simple things like that. And then also engaging, again, in, in difficult things that will ultimately be a better and more enduring source of dopamine. In and with the world. Dopamine Nation is the book, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Dr. Anna Lemke, you are brilliant. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, my pleasure. Great show. Thank you. It's been a real honor and a, and a pleasure talking with you. Dr. Anna Lemke, uh, thanks again to you for so much for being with us today. We will be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Although, avoid the dopamine rush. <laughs> be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.